Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Skeptics and Seekers. It's not really an episode. It's more of a director's cut. You remember that uh, one time we did the thing? It was fun. We're going to do it again. Uh, And so I'm going to talk about uh, the conversation that uh, we just had with Pascal. I am doing this uh, uh, chronologically right after the conversation uh, Robert decided to stick around with me. We ditched the other two clowns. <laughs> they are uh, they are in the tent uh, getting a con- concussion protocol. I don't think it's going to turn out well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they got pretty bloody in there. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should use helmets. <laughs> nah. Um, anyway, uh, there are a few things that uh, got left on the cutting room floor. Uh, a lot of things that we didn't get to talk about. So any of you who are screaming, yeah, but you missed the... Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm counting on you to go to the comments at skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com and tell us what we missed and talk about it. Um, that's what comments are for. Um and secondly, I just, you know, I've got a little bit of energy around a couple of things that were said and were not said. And so, uh, Robert, if you would like to have a more rational conversation, I do <laughs> have my helmet on, though, just in case. Um, I, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to jump into a, a, couple of those, a couple of things. So, first of all, uh, I just want to ask you um, how you feel about the conversation. Did, did we cover... Uh, did we cover the topic? Were there a lot of things left out? Is it too much of a discussion for uh, one show? What what did, what did you think about what just happened? I think I think it was a good conversation. I think there, if you broke it down by percentage, we probably spent quite possibly a larger percentage not really talking about epistemology and the wager, but. Uh, there are some long periods where we were partly just going into evidence for or against God existing, uh, which obviously is a related topic, but not strictly the topic uh, for Teddy's wager or Pascal's wager. So there was an issue of kind of cans of worms being opened, I would say, and and then having to sort of halfway respond to it, like Brian would have to respond to it or Teddy would have to respond. And then we quickly tried to get back to the wager. But um, so, yeah, there is some meandering, which is a part of these conversations. Uh, but maybe looking at it with a critical eye, focusing a little bit more on the pure epistemology or the principles could have been better. But I mean, I think we still touched on a lot of that by the end of the show. Yeah. Well, so you and I might get to touch on some of that now. Um, I, I will say that my experience in uh, researching Pascal's wager for the show, I encountered zero successful defenses of Pascal's wager. Uh, They were, it's just a bloodbath uh, out there opposing Pascal's wager. So you can look for debates, uh, Pascal's wager. You can look for uh, Christians talking about it by themselves or atheists talking about it by themselves. And it's just an overwhelming bloodbath against. And I find that uh, Pascal, who was clearly a brilliant man, right. uh, I, I want to take nothing away from He was brilliant. The dumbest thing he ever wrote was, <laughs> was out of inspiration for his Christianity. 
I, I so just, <laughs> can you remind me what you said about how he would respond to other religions? Um, I'm forgetting what you said. Well, so uh, he, he wasn't concerned about other religions uh, because for him, Christianity was the only religion that mattered. So he wasn't, he wasn't really trying to uh, necessarily prove it uh, against other religions and their heavens and their hells, but he was mostly a taste and see guy. And so I think a, a lot of his wager uh, was what, what you do, uh, kind of answering my question, here's, here's how you try Pascal's wager. And he goes into a lot of kind of works righteousness suggestions, you know, do, do, do these things for a long period of time and you will come to see it. So it, you know, mm-hmm. it, that's true whether you're a Muslim or whether you're a Hindu or no matter what you're trying, just try out Christianity in this way and see it. So, okay, let's say I knew Pascal back then and I went to him and said, hey, my neighbor is a Muslim and he's given me some arguments for Islam, but I also have heard arguments for Christianity. What do I do, Mr. Pascal? What do you think he would say? I think Pascal would have given you the same answer that Mormons give you, which is, hey, just read this book and see if you got the fire in the belly. Except Pascal Mm -hmm. wasn't about reading the book. It was about just doing the works. Just do these works and see if you don't get the fire in the belly. And I, I think... I, I honestly think that is the extent of his answer. Yeah, he, yeah that's, he believed in experience. Yeah. He became an, a Christian because of personal experience. But did he write apologetics as well? I really don't know. I, I, don't I didn't look so. into this. I don't. Okay. So I'm not a I'm not a expert on Pascal. I, I only started you know, diving into him in preparation for the show, which we've been preparing for for a long time. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think that Pascal had a robust um, epistemology here, and he certainly didn't have an apologetic. He was anti-apologetic. He was a Christian mm-hmm. skeptic. He did not believe in apologetics. He he believed much as I did when I was a Christian. You can't prove God. It almost starts to sound a little bit like a Kierkegaardian leap of faith to me. Do you think it's similar? Yeah, <laughs> kind. I do. Um, Pascal may not have put it in those terms. Um, once again, he believed in experience and he believed that the only way to get the experience, if you didn't already believe in the variables was just to try it in experience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be fair, so this is definitely not how I ground my own belief or how I would necessarily go about things, but I'm sympathetic to part of the idea of that. All right, let's pretend for a second. Christianity is true then you would think that by sort of trying it on for size, and um, I'm from Atlanta, and there's a, a megachurch pastor there, Andy Stanley, and he's talked about this. I actually really respect Andy Stanley. He gets a lot of crap for I certain things. I can't but... respect anyone with two first names. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, Ricky Bobby. And, uh, <laughs> I but, um... love that movie. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but Andy Stanley um, – one of his apologetics is to get people to, to sort of try on Christianity um, by simply saying these things are healthy for you anyway, like meditation, you know, prayer is like that, uh, giving to the poor, and and then see if as you try it on, the beliefs also make sense with it. And 
um, I think many people have become Christians in that sort of way. Uh, so I, I want to remain a little sympathetic to that, but I'm fully with you, David, that if you do that and the content of your belief is still at zero percent, like it's not only does it ultimately not work, it quickly becomes uh, toxic. Yeah, because it's, it's a disconfirmation, actually, because what someone is yeah. saying is if you do these things, you will get faith and then you do them and then you don't. Then the, yes. it's, it's a very active disconfirmation. And I experienced some of that in my own period of doubt of like, just read the Bible more, just pray more. Um, and I, for a while, I tried to have more faith. And um, there was actually a funny period when I was deep in doubt when I was catching up on some classics and I started reading 1984. And I felt like I was double thinking. I was like, I was trying to believe two plus two equals five. And for me, I took that as God telling me, you can investigate. You don't have to try to believe that if God is real, it's going to ultimately make sense. You don't have to make two plus two equals five. So I can relate to that feeling and how it it, it divides your mind. It's un, it's a psychological, it's a pathological uh, state of mind ultimately. Right. So let me let me just dive into uh, my notes here and uh, sure. get your thoughts on some of this. By the way, did you take any notes? Uh, just curious. Uh, just a little bit uh, here and there. Okay, um, so I'm usually not a note taker. People who uh, have been listening to my podcast know that I'm I notoriously don't take notes <laughs> during the podcast, <laughs> and uh, doing the director's cuts gives me an excuse to take notes and exercise better listening habits. Um, and you know, it's really hard to listen deeply to what people are saying when you're yes. competitively talking. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's one thing I do like about having more than two people is it gives you a break from talking and you can kind of share a little bit of thinking through your own ideas and listening. But you're right. I mean, there's always a give and take of you're, you're not going to be listening the entire time because you're these are complex ideas and you're having to wrestle with them yourself. Right. And at, at one point, uh, speaking of the advantages of four people, I got up in the middle of the podcast and went to the bathroom. <laughs> That's amazing. I had no idea you did that. That's incredible. I said well to myself, done. you know, these guys, they, they got it. <laughs> I'm just going to go. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, um, so, 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 my notes. So I already uh, talked about a couple of these on the show. Um, so, one would be. Um, well, let me just go. Let me just go back on one that we kind of touched on on the show. I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but um, it's about prior probability. Uh, and I know this is a real epistemological question here, epistemology wonk, uh, trying to figure out the odds of a thing, fifty fifty, and so forth. So you talked about that a little bit, uh, but I I suggest that before we can um, before we can talk about the odds. Of anything, we have to consider um, the prior probability mm -hmm. of a thing. So we're never coming into a decision blank. This is this sure. is one of my um, pet peeves. Now, I'm not a mathematician. Uh, I'm not a math geek. Uh, so don't don't at me, people. Um, but it seems to me that you know part of this is blank slate thinking. Which is which is very theoretical. We are not blank slates, though. Mm -hmm. So there is no proposition that we put on the table where we're completely a blank slate uh, on. And if we are completely blank slate on it, then 
talking of probabilities, doesn't matter. I mean, That's what I agree sense. with. Right. Yeah, it doesn't really. It's just kind of a vacuous situation. Right. So um, I, I think that you know we have we we are constantly evaluating things based on at least our perception of the prior probability of that thing. And so if if we're weighing something like well, God or no God, we don't have any evidence. It's still not fifty percent. Right, just because uh, it's not fifty percent with the flying spaghetti monster or the great the green giant or right. whatever, because we we have our prior experience of whether we have encountered God or not. And let's say you have encountered God; it's not fifty percent for you. Um, it's it's higher because you you think that you've encountered God, and if you haven't encountered God, that's not fifty percent for you either, because you might feel like you should have encountered God. So what you've encountered is a a vacuum where there's no God. So you've got mm-hmm. you, there are all kinds of things in your life that work into that experience and in that calculation and that we would just call prior probability. You know, my aunt, uh, my aunt, she was a Christian. Uh, she, you know, she died of cancer in her uh, late thirties. Uh, even though she uh, served God, she prayed. Uh, the church believed in healing. They prayed for her. They surrounded her with miracle uh, services and things. She still, she still died. That's a prior probability. Now, what I just said is not true <laughs> in my case. I'm just saying mm-hmm. uh, sure. this, this is the, these are the things that we take to the table every time we look at the probabilities. And we have to include those into the calculation. And so we never come to this with 50-50. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that because... I think you can theoretically say blank slate, but we've already both said it's you can't even really assign probabilities. It's a pointless thought experiment. So you might as you need to include the data. You have the data of your prior your your priors of your experience and your knowledge, and of course you're going to use that. Right. Um, you know, Bayesian. This is, this is part of Bayesian calculations. And once right. again, I'm not a math geek. Don't don't at me. I've, I've just read some books. Uh, didn't understand them all. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're, if you're not starting with a robust prior probability, you're not doing Bayes. You, you, can't, you can't just make up the, the odds and then start doing good Bayes from there. Um, sure. So, um, so I guess um, how does that tie into our conversation? You felt like Teddy or, yeah, the Teddy was uh, trying to present a blank slate yeah, or that's yeah. what Pascal is kind of. Well, Teddy, Teddy uh, uh, wanted us to imagine a blank slate. Uh, Dale, uh, who does think about uh, math and probabilities robustly, uh, and he has some ac- academic um, um, prowess behind him, so I want to give him full credit. Uh, but he, people like him, and I, I want to say. Um, William Lane Craig, uh, and maybe maybe some other luminaries mm-hmm. like to like to start with blank slate equals fifty fifty, and and I'm just yeah. I, I'm I am constantly pushing against that. I don't I don't even think that we can start a robust discussion uh, if if that's how you're doing the math. Yeah, I I fully sympathize with what they're trying to do, um, but I think that approach 
gets you into this confusing, philosophically empty scenario where you don't even know what 50-50 is referring to. So that's why, and this is what I said on the Miros podcast with him when this exact thing came up, is I think it's much more helpful to say, let's start with the data. And obviously, we're trying to to not have any preconceived notions about the data at the at the beginning, but we have data. Where, so let's get the whole theoretical 50-50 and just say, here's the data. Now, what is the best explanation? And try not to import assumptions beyond the data. Um, because that that's more reasonable and much more how we live our daily lives is we're surrounded by data and we're trying to make inferences based on that. I absolutely agree with that. So, um, so my next note here, uh, is it a wager uh, if you have sufficient evidence? So uh, Teddy's wager involves uh, evaluating evidence um, as opposed to evaluating a decision matrix without evidence. So, uh, but she still kept calling it a wager. <laughs> and it just, it just kind of made me wonder, well, wait a minute. If, if we have sufficient evidence, is that, is that actually a wager? Uh, so, you know, you can say technically everything's a wager because you don't know 100% the outcome of anything. But, you know, if I go to work, uh, you know, during a work week for 40 hours, am I wagering that that time is going to turn into a paycheck? No, that's not a wager. I wouldn't call that a wager. Technically, it's a wager. My my uh, company could go bankrupt and belly up, or they could just renege on their responsibilities. But that is that is such a low probability uh, assessment. I wouldn't call that a wager at all. I have sufficient reason to believe that I am going to get a paycheck, right? Because I've worked forty hours, right. uh, you know, for a reputable company. So. Um, are we even talking about a wager in the face of sufficient evidence? I think um, you you can frame it as a wager. Part of it does um, depend on what you mean by sufficient evidence. But I, I guess the paycheck example is something that feels very certain. Uh, but there are plenty more... Um, uncertain situations but that aren't they're they're closer maybe to 50 50 and 50 50 after taking in the evidence i think i i was thinking about this yesterday and i think maybe a helpful analogy is being in a marriage that is struggling and you you really felt like it was a very strong marriage early on and that you you love each other and there's a lot going there, but at, at least at this current time, you're really struggling. You're at this point where you're, let's say you're below 50% sure it's going to continue past six months from now. Um, I think this is where a wager could make sense. Like, do you want to commit and give it another go? And in a sense, in a very light sense, fake it till you make it. I don't mean really fake it, but I just mean act as if this marriage is going to continue and give it your all, which is a wager. Um, and I think there really is a middle ground, let's say 40% to 60%, or I think it could be wider than that, where you really don't know. Um, so you're not fighting a false belief. You really just don't know. And you can put your chips in for a while. Now, the key is you can only do that for so long. 
if if you give your marriage a chance for another three months and you're still and it drops even lower your certainty, then it, there's a time limit on that. But I think it does make sense to count that as a wager um, in that sort of situation. And I think our faith in God can be like that. Uh, do you do you think do you agree with that? Well, I think the problem with your marriage. Uh, analogy is that you don't have sufficient evidence. That's the thing. You don't. You don't have any reason to believe that that marriage is going to last more than six months. You have every. So, do you think you should get divorced the next day? No, I, I. I'm not saying that. I'm. I'm just saying that it's a wager, exactly because you don't have evidence. If you had good evidence that your marriage was going to last, I don't know what kind of evidence that would be. By the way. But um, it wouldn't be a wager anymore. Well, so, I, but what if it's only like 60%? Let's say um, personality tests say you're a good match. You look back at your history and it seems like you're a good match. But then there are a few red flags. So you're you're over 50%, just in your own judgment of what could happen. You're over 50%, but you're far from certain. I think that feels like a wager. I, I guess. I don't, I don't like the metaphor of wagers at all. Uh, I guess is what we're revealing here. Um, well, okay, I'm an investor in some cryptocurrency, and uh, that's been all over the place over the past couple of years. And luckily, I didn't put in you know my house or anything. But um, during a period where I felt more sure that it really was going to stick around and be something, but I was far from certain. But definitely, I was over fifty percent. That that still feels like a wager. I'm putting some money in, and yeah. So I, I guess I would argue using the term wager could could make sense there. Okay, uh, maybe so. I guess I would have to fall back on on what Brian said about this, which is why the heck are we wagering uh, with our souls? Why this doesn't feel right? It feels like a con. Uh, you know, God, God puts us here, gives us bad evidence, uh, and says, okay, place your bets. And I, yeah, and that's, the, the why, that's why it doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. The interesting thing about that argument is you're basically, you're kind of going to a hidden hiddenness of God argument, which is understandable. I would be and, happy to argue that with you sometime, by the way. Uh, yeah, that could be an interesting discussion. I, I, I do think that's one of the um, harder questions to answer, at least initially, um, for, for sure. I think it's a good place to go. Uh, but yeah, what's interesting is you go to this hiddenness of God argument, which ends up coming back around and lowering your probability in the wager. <laughs> so um, yeah, no, I, I, can, I can understand that. I, I, think, I think that ends up being part of the data into your decision of does this make sense? Does this seem like a good God? And maybe it does lower it to the point where you're you're out again. Okay. So um, I don't know if that was you accepting my challenge to debate the hiddenness of God or you were <laughs> conceding that you've already lost. Uh, I, so. I, well, I wasn't. I was thinking you weren't necessarily trying to get into that right now. Uh, no, uh, no, I'm not trying to get into. I just, uh, you know. I'm just I'm just putting it out there. I think actually so this is I randomly copied this quote in that's related to this. Um and it's not necessarily a strong argument but I think it's fascinating. Um y- did you happen to watch the HBO show Watchmen? 
by any chance? I did not. Okay. All right. I, do so not, I'm a little... I do not pay for HBO. I, I uh, pay well. for it. All kinds of other stuff, but uh, I guess you didn't take yeah. HBO's wager. But no, um, I didn't, and I feel like I lost because there's been some great <laughs> stuff on HBO for years and years that I haven't watched, and I kept saying, "Well, you know, that's a one-off hit. Okay, so uh, that's a great show. Don't need it. Uh, what are they going to do for an on-car? Oh, yeah, they, everybody's talking about that one. Well, you know what? That's going to be over soon. Don't. Yeah, I've, I feel you. I've, I've liked it subscribed and then canceled so many times for various shows but anyway um i i love this show it was a great show there was one one of the best episodes is is dr manhattan which is this crazy overpowered superhero he's he's very godlike really um and he's on this first date with this uh woman and it's well it's not even a first date they they meet um and she thinks that he is someone in the Halloween mask, essentially. She doesn't know it's actually Dr. Manhattan. And he's telling her that he is this godlike being. Um, but um, And she's slowly starting to actually think he might be him because he's outside of time and can know the future and the past and all this stuff. But the, what was so fascinating to me is Dr. Manhattan is this epitome, epitome of science and arguably atheism and just we're all particles like there's even a quote in the Watchmen comic of uh that the particles in a dead body are no different than a, a live body so what difference does it make so he, he's this very stark cold version of science and reality and but so right there in this conversation he's presenting this kind of atheistic worldview and then when they're talking about going on a date she says he basically asked her out on a date the next night and she says, I, but are you really, uh, Dr. Manhattan? And he says, I'd rather you remain unsure before you agree to have dinner with me tomorrow night. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about that is that is a very good analogy, I think of how God works with us. And you can, you can debate this, but I just loved that. Here's this, you know, science being saying something inadvertently that is exactly what Christians have said God does to us, uh, which is, and I, I think the ultimate answer to something about the hiddenness of God has to do with free will and not coercing us um, into belief. And also, this is something we didn't talk about a ton, but I don't think God cares that much about the propositions in our head. He wants to know us. Okay, hold, um, hold that thought, yeah. <laughs> because that's, a, that's in my notes that's down that's down. My okay, list okay. Uh, and but the one thing I do want to say is I don't take the hiddenness of God lightly. I do think uh, it's something that really needs to be grappled with, just like the problem of evil. So I think that's a good preview. I I won't push the problem of evil further. <laughs> uh, I will push the problem of hell and Grethor. Okay. I feel where'd like, you get the term Grethor or from? By the so way, so I feel like Grethor is uh, the Klingon hell. From, from Star Trek. Okay, nice. I don't know if that's correct, but the, the, <laughs> it sounds like, because I remember um, there was, yeah, anyway, I, I could geek out and check for a long time. I'm going to stop there. I think that's where that word came from in my head. I was trying to grope for something <laughs> I like nonsensical, it. and um, I, th I think maybe Star Trek beat me to it. Um, but at any rate, my my. The point of this note here uh, that I wanted to get more of your thoughts on uh, was I I liken hell to any other made up 
uh, punishment or torment that right. someone gives. And if you can say, well, Pascal's, you know, no wager holds up to, you know, some torment that someone just made up. Why, why should hell hold up any differently? Why should I preference hell to be more real than you preference my Grethor? And I'm 100% um, on board with this. Like, that's why the first time I heard Pascal's wager, I was probably, you know, in college or maybe high school. And just hearing it in a vacuum, I was like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, just because it, you're for it to make sense, you just need all this stuff beforehand uh, unapologetic a reason to believe that the christian hell let's say is the only main option if you don't have that preceding material then it, it's very ad hoc uh you might as well do it about grethor just like uh uh you said okay well that was easy um <laughs> by the way i'm currently reading dante's inferno right now so this is a very apropos uh conversation um i'm i'm already thinking a lot about uh hell so it's so Dante's Inferno is actually fun. Uh, let me recommend. I can't remember the author's name, so sorry. Um, I want to say uh, Inferno. I think is I think is okay. the name of. But it's another um, fictional um, telling of um, of uh, of this story. Uh, there are there are a couple of books. Uh, I wouldn't call it a series, but there there are a couple of books there, Tours of Hell. So, um, I'll uh, I'll send you a link uh, in sure. email if I think about it. Uh, just understand that I'm really busy and I make promises like this all the time that never <laughs> happen. No problem. I wasn't lying. I just okay. am incapable of saying true things about <laughs> what I'm going to do in the future. <laughs> So, Fair enough. <laughs> but at least um, you're honest about that. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I, I'm just saying, uh, Dante's Inferno is a, um, is a good read, but I, I recommend it back to back with, um, with, with this other series of books that I'm thinking of, of just kind of a modern, more modern twist on the same story. Great. Yeah. So, um, it is more rational to, be- okay. Yeah. I know what I was saying here. Uh, so this is one of those things that we didn't have time to talk about at all. I just chose not to bring it up. Uh, but part of um, Teddy's argument uh, was, well, we should go with a winner. And I, and I know that you, you disagree with that fundamentally. I actually think that Teddy is right uh, from a biblical perspective. <laughs> from a biblical perspective, not a moral perspective. I don't think the Bible is a particularly moral book. Okay, But I do think that there is enough in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, uh, to kind of back Teddy up. The reason you go with God is because he's going to win. Um, n- not because he's good. Um, it's not to say the Bible doesn't say that God is good. That's just not the reason it, it gives us for going with him. Right. Um, so at, at any rate, what I wanted to challenge was the notion that God's winning. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I just, I just, if we, if what we're looking at is we should go with the guy that looks like he's winning, you should go with Satan. I argue strongly that the evidence is on Satan's side. Satan's winning because uh, everything about uh, the Bible story just kind of points to Satan winning. Look at heaven. 
uh, perfect bliss in God's control. Satan rips it apart, takes a third of the angels in. That's a win. Uh, God can't stop him. God can't kill him. Um, they, we get to uh, the creation of the world. God says, okay, I'm going to make this uh, perfect little place over here. Satan crashes the party, screws it up. Satan wins again. Uh, Garden of Eden, uh, bring, bringing humanity down. Satan wins. Okay, well, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a plan of redemption. It's going to involve making a great nation out of these Jews. Satan wins again. He destroys the Jews to the point where God just sends them into slavery after slavery. He says, screw you guys. I'm going to fight some other people. So God has another plan of redemption. I want to send Jesus down. Satan kills him. God says, aha, I knew you would kill him, though. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to redeem the world. And But then we have Jesus being honest and saying, you know what? Most of the world's going to go to hell. Broad is the way to leads to destruction. And most of the people are going to find it. Satan wins again. Uh, Satan and God are in a cosmic war. There shouldn't be a war between an uh, all-powerful being and a kind of powerful being. But this war is still going on and God can't win it. Satan wins again. Your aunt just got eczema. Satan wins again. <laughs> I, I can go on. Satan is winning this freaking war. Everyone who thinks like Teddy should already be worshiping Satan. I can start to I can start to tell that you really were a preacher, David. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you get the you have that good like repetitive framework, you know, of like of repeating that point and coming back to it. Uh, you should get back on that pulpit. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you make a good point. Um, there's so much, a lot of different ways you could look at the data of this world. And as far as good versus evil, like if you look at it just from purely humanist uh, perspective, um, even that's actually a little hard to judge because it's like there's so much evil and suffering, and yet there has been undeniable progress um, and so much less suffering now than there was before. But then when you look at it from a biblical perspective, like you're saying, then, yeah, you have uh, Satan constantly thwarting things. Um and I mean, ultimately, if you buy into the whole Christian program, you have the idea of the cross um, winning this fundamental battle that is still being played out, sort of, of defeating death and that sort of thing. But I, I do see your point that, like, I, I think having some sort of free will defense is crucial to any of these sort of topics, because otherwise, you're right, it's nonsensical. Like, and obviously, God could, in my beliefs, God absolutely could just snap his fingers and make all the evil go away. But my belief is if he did that, we would also disappear. <laughs> Every Everything would disappear because we're all in, infected, essentially. So I think that's why he doesn't snap his fingers. Um, obviously, we're, we, we'd be getting deep into a question of the problem of evil if we went down that path. But I, I do, I really do like your point about that you can go down that direction if you think who's winning who's the most powerful man in the room because my problem with a lot of hyper calvinists is that they start to imply that even if god ends up being evil even if god ends up doing things that we we really think are evil uh well we should still follow him because he's going to send us to hell and i do I find that uh, revolting, honestly. Like, I, 
I think, in fact, I've been planning a blog post for a long time called we judge God and that's okay. Uh, and so, and I know I step outside of a lot of mainstream Christendom with that, but a key point is when I say we judge God, metaphysically, I think we're judging him with the morals he implanted in us. So I'm not judging him with something that's outside of him, but my point is we do judge, and this is where I'm with you, David, is we are in our rights to judge, for instance, Old Testament passages um, and say, hey, God, this looks awful, and what what's going on here? Like, we are in our rights to do that personally. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of in a divided place there, one leg in each camp, you could say. Okay, well, uh, that's great. We'll make an atheist of you yet. Um, <laughs> so I just had a, a brief note here. Pascal's wager uh, is presuppositional. Um, it's, it's still, at the end of the day, presuppositional apologetics. Um, so I have no respect, zero respect for zero, uh, for, uh, presuppositional apologetics and, uh, those people who push it. Uh, and what you, what you need to even begin the project of Pascal's wager, which by the way, existed in Pascal's day, uh, with almost everybody is a presupposition of the biblical God, uh, a presupposition of the biblical heaven, a presupposition of the biblical hell. Um, and so talking about it outside of those presuppositions uh, wouldn't make any sense uh, because this is a part of the decision tree. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, Pascal is just playing with one of those variables. Well, what if you were unsure that there was a God? How do you, how do you firm up that? that right. faith that's that's more of where he was coming from um and less which about, i mean you admit you can relate to that giving all those presuppositions right exactly in fact i right. think that if you if you accept all of those presuppositions if you take that all on board then i do think uh pascal gives us the beginning of good decision theory uh, but I, I, the reason I think it's bad decision theory is because we do live in a different time and we do have more right. things to consider. Uh, so we are considering other religions and other gods and other hells and so forth. Pascal was not. So his, his decision tree was very simple. You know there's a god, you know there's, or you think there, there could be a god. Uh, and you're pretty sure there's a heaven and you're uh, almost certain there's a hell. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, then then what would what should your decision be about following this god yes i can i can make that make sense if i narrow down the variables and you know make them almost certainties in people's minds and so if you think of it from coming from the other direction i mean we're thinking of it as you're you're a hardened atheist and then sure. you look at pascal's wager of course it doesn't work but if you're looking at it as you're a uh, weak Christian and what could shore up your faith, Pascal's wager makes a lot of sense. And I think it, that is the context it comes up a lot is in that situation. I know you're you know familiar with it coming up as an apologetic as well, but I have personally heard it come up in the context of encouraging a Christian who's currently doubting. Right, and I... Um... I don't want to give Pascal's wager too much credit, but this is the, <laughs> this is the only way I could see it making sense uh, right. to me. So, um, 
yeah, so so moving on. We've got way too much agreement for this. Um, follow. Oh yeah. So Teddy, uh, you you. This was you, not Teddy. Uh, the um, the theory of um, following Jesus as opposed to believing right. in particular um, propositions. Uh, so Jesus goes to his disciples. Uh, when he first meets him and, and just says, follow me. I, I, I would argue that what that this is a bad example. So I've written a book that I have not put out yet um, because it's constantly being edited, edited and I constantly keep just not doing anything with it. But I keep teasing it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's called Red Letters, uh, the worst, um, what did I call it? The worst ethical and practical teachings the world has ever known. <laughs> uh, and, and I um, just talk about Jesus, Jesus, uh, all the things that Jesus supposedly said and did. And I go through and I explain why Jesus was in fact, not uh, a good teacher or a good man. This is a thing that is a um, sensitive topic because even atheists right. uh, talk about Jesus as if he were a good man. But I would argue that they don't know what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> Neither atheists or Christians have read their Bible very, very carefully here, and so I do. I do challenge this uh, kind of robotic uh, repetition of the idea that Jesus was this great figure. Um, but that said, part of part of it is the way Jesus called disciples. So he didn't. He didn't call the smartest guys in the world. And I and mm -hmm. I do wonder about the mentality of uh, you know some of the fishermen that he went to and said follow me and they said oh, okay uh, that's that's actually not good <laughs> that's actually bad um, it's bad to say yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna drop my nets and follow you Lord because I mean what do I have here I got nothing. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bad fisherman. I can't, <laughs> I can't get fish, can't feed my family. Here's a guy, and he's not even offering me anything. He says, follow me. He says, I'll make you fishermen and men. I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> it's got to be better than this. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just thinking, uh, how do you get something good out of, out of the doctrine of follow me without sufficient evidence? Yeah. So first of all, I'm just now realizing I accidentally referred to Jesus as a fisherman during the episode <laughs> because I was thinking in terms of the people he was calling to follow him. Uh, obviously, Jesus was not a fisherman, um, though he did help them catch a lot of fish. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I think part of it is if we're evaluating Christianity qua Christianity as if it's true, then you have the most charismatic, perfect God-in-person teacher saying, follow me. And it's a little hard to picture what that was even like. Like, what what was it like to be Zacchaeus and to have God incarnate look up at you and say your name and knowing that you didn't know him previously? Um, it's just not... I don't think you can totally equate that to a normal situation of someone walking up and saying, follow me. Okay, so, um, so let me just, mm -hmm. let me just steel man this a little bit uh, because I, I gave the most ridiculous 
version of this. <laughs> let me get, let me give the slightly less ridiculous version of it. Okay. Uh, Jesus goes to the fishermen, uh, and they can't catch fish. And uh, you know, maybe they are good at their jobs, but this is a bad spot. Uh, they've been trying all day, and then Jesus miracles a bunch of fish into their nets, and then he says, "Follow me." Great, they've got some at least some evidence now. They've got some reason to do it. Um, and so, if you want to argue, oh no, but these people did get some reason to believe that Jesus was a different kind of person. I would still say that, you know, just because someone can do a, a magic trick is not good reason to follow them. I would say that none of the disciples actually had a good reason to follow Jesus. Um, they should have asked a few more questions maybe along the way. But if, if, if your argument is, oh, but they did have some good reason to follow Jesus because Jesus did some things for them and they could at least get enough reason to start the journey, I would say then that we shouldn't follow Jesus until Jesus does the same for us today. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, part of this is a little hard to parse the actual narratives because they are compressed and we don't totally know what that situation was like when he walked up. Like, in fact, one of the Gospels, it, it makes it seem like Jesus had never met some of the disciples, but then I think in another Gospel, he probably had known some. You know, it gets a little confusing parsing all that historically, but um, taking it to more of a general level... Um, I think there has to be, I think there has to be, maybe one way to frame it is there has to be enough of an incentive to follow, like a epistemological incentive, moral incentive, something to get you to follow a certain amount of distance. And then that has to maybe go up the longer you follow. So maybe it doesn't take very much to cause you to go to church and maybe it's um a neighbor who lives a very attractive lifestyle who is very loving and they invite you to church maybe that from god's perspective that's enough to like get you in the door like all right check this out is it enough for you to keep going from there no it doesn't seem like it so i think you need to be given more and to take it back to an analogy of dating and marriage same sort of thing you need enough to go on that first date and you need to have enough to want to go on that second date but whatever you feel at that time cannot support a marriage by any means so i think i think there does have to be more at some point okay three more three more quick notes and uh, then i'm out of notes um, sure. This is this is the one uh, for you because you had mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Does God want us? Well, actually, so I'll ask these two together. One, does God want us to do empty works? And two, uh, does God care about uh, the propositions we hold in our mind? Uh, so I, I wanted to put these together because you know part of the solution of Pascal Swasher is do these works, <laughs> uh, and it seems like they're place in the Bible where God says, no, I'm not actually interested in your sacrifices or your, right. you know, your empty works. This, this doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, and so I'm not entirely sure how then the atheist picks up Pascal's wager and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do some empty works <laughs> and uh, see, if that, see if that gets me some fire insurance. Um, and then the second part of this, um, I think God absolutely cares uh, what we think propositionally part of uh, part of our crimes are thought crimes. Uh, lust, for instance, is a thought crime. 
Uh, and God cares about that. Um, you know, lust is the same as adultery. Hate is a thought crime. Hate's the same mm-hmm. as murder. Uh, and then as far as the propositions go, it, this depends on what Christian you're talking to. For instance, if you believe that God as a, is a trinity uh, and that he's some kind of triune entity that is yet one, and you can just say, yep, God is one, um, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you think to yourself, oh, no, God is three gods, you know, maybe you've really mistaken, you know, the, the Trinity doctrine really bad. Um, well, that's, that's just an idea, a model that you're holding in your head. And some would say, well, but if you think that God is three gods, that's a thought crime. And, and that God does care. Sure. So, firstly, I was mostly talking about in terms of knowing him and salvation and stuff like that, as far as God, quote unquote, not caring about your propositional beliefs. Um, because if you have an unhealthy thought life, like, for instance, lust, but also just, uh, yeah, thinking hateful thoughts or dwelling on really negative things, God doesn't want that because that doesn't help human flourishing for one. So bracketing that out for a second and just going towards like kind of salvation, um, we are integrated beings. So thoughts do come into play because you can't know God and even really pray um, if you have 0% belief in him. So it's not that thoughts are completely irrelevant, but the way so much of Christianity has framed it is that thoughts are the only thing that matters, that you just hold this certain proposition in your head at a certain percent certainty, and you get in the door. And I think that flies in the face of what a a robust understanding of the New Testament actually teaches. Uh, Would you you agree that there are some thoughts that would um, disqualify you, uh, as it were, or thoughts that... uh, not necessarily, to be honest. Okay, like, so I if, think. What, so, what if you had the thought? And this is my last note, so I just wanted to okay. kind of dovetail these in. Yeah, yeah. What if you believed that God was an evil God? Um. So, you could. I don't know if it's really the thought that's disqualif- disqualifying you. I think it's knowing Jesus that qualifies you, but I think there's multiple ways into knowing Jesus. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis is the one that says that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but it doesn't say that knowing Jesus is the or something like that. Well, um, I'm screwed up the quote now, <laughs> but like the propositional knowledge, I guess I should say. So, for instance, like the native who's never heard the gospel. Um, this is, I mean, for one, the Bible doesn't go into detail on this and I'm not trying to, I don't have super firm views on this, but I I thoroughly believe we are judged based on what talents we are given, what knowledge we are given. And so you could have someone that's very confused about um, a lot of things, but if they are sort of seeking the light and that light ultimately is Christ, then I'm definitely not going to write them out of heaven for that. Um, this is, the, yeah, this is getting into very, I, I'm very wary of writing people off based on the absolute specific beliefs. I think it has a lot more to do with the heart 
but I think the heart leads to certain beliefs when you're exposed to the gospel and this message of a dying God who um, self-sacrificial love. Like if you're not responding to that, then that's a much bigger problem than if you believe in the Trinity or duality or something like that. Sure. So on the on the evil God question, uh, one of the things that uh, plagues me uh, when I when I try to think in terms of well, let me let me see if there's a God out there. Let me go through you know things that I can do to search for the truth about God. Does a God exist? Mm-hmm. Which I, I simply don't believe one does. Part of the problem I have is that the Bible that I read presents a God that I can only categorize as evil. Mm-hmm. So if, if this God exists, he is an evil God. Um, now, if some other God exists, uh, that's great. Love to, love to find that one. Uh, but does, does the attempt to resolve Pascal's wager uh, get um, damaged by the, the thought that this is an evil God? Um, you know, should I be going through the motions, for instance, to appease an evil God? And that's probably where I'm more on the skeptic side that I would say no. If that's really your priors, then you need to work out if this is really an evil God or not, because I'm not going to encourage someone to to get on board with the evil God. Um, I mean, yeah, you can make the torture um, defeater of that, you know, how can you make a sane decision to be tortured forever, like Teddy was talking about. But beyond that, yeah, no, I, I don't think, I, I think the evil God I'm tempted to say the evil God does defeat uh, Pascal's wager, that it part of the presuppositions like you were talking about is that it is a truly good God. Okay. And uh, with that, we've gone much longer than I thought I would, but I have enjoyed the conversation very much. Do you have any uh, notes that, or things from the show that you want to uh, ask me about? I was able to work in, I think, pretty much all my notes already. I didn't have a ton. Uh, but I will also say to the listener, I have a feeling that David and I will be getting into some more of the stuff about the evil God of the Bible and that sort of thing in our podcast next week. So they can look forward to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I'm thanks. new, but I'm getting pretty good at pitching things, right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. That's <laughs> I can't improve on that. So uh, thank you for joining me for uh, this session of noodling over the show i um i do feel like um these kind of after shows help me put into perspective some of the things that were said and get some of the things out of my system that weren't said and it's been a delight uh to have you uh with me and so uh that said we're gonna be talking later today uh get some lunch Get some dinner. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so, viewers, we'll be seeing you next week. Robert, I'll be seeing you this evening. Bye-bye. Sounds great, David. Bye.